Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode for you. Part two in our 5,000-year overview of the history of Xinjiang. I mentioned before, and I'll say it again, the term Xinjiang didn't get affixed to that part of China until 1884, following a major and historic revolt that happened out there. We'll get to that in good time. So it's strictly for the sake of inconvenience that I'll refer to that land as Xinjiang throughout this series. Well, last time we went up as high as Felix Baumgartner again, looking down on the geography of Xinjiang, surrounded in every direction with dense mountain chains, the Tianshan and Altai Mountains to the north, the Kunlun Mountains to the south, and the Pamirs to the west. And the star of this whole production was the Tarim Basin, totally surrounded by these mountains, real mountains, like you see in a National Geographic special, not these Hollywood Hills here, and deserts that could stand toe-to-toe with anything you could find in the Sahara or Rubahaili. It was a harsh environment, but over the past 5,000 years, there were times when it was a lot less harsh than it was at other times. And besides the Tarim Basin, there were also two other notable basins where a lot of history played out over the millennia. The Tungarian Basin in the north and the Turpan Basin located in between the two. We looked at the Tarim mummies and how that opened up a whole new chapter in the prehistory of that region. We noted a number of Western explorers, adventurers, and scholars who got the ball rolling with the earliest excavation and study of these mummies and all the garments and artifacts they were buried with. And there were also a number of theories about who these Caucasoid original inhabitants were, where they came from, and well, when they got there, and what language they spoke. I prominently mentioned the works of Victor Mayer and all the colleagues who worked with him or in his wake. A lot of their books and videos I have listed in the show notes at the website at teacup.media. So let's leave this prehistory behind. You know, like anything in history, the further back you go in time, eh, the less shish kebab there is on that skewer. But we won't have that problem the closer we get to the Qing Dynasty. I mentioned these uh, Caucasoid, Europoid people who it was suggested were these earliest inhabitants found in these graves in Lolan and Xiaohe and elsewhere. The ancestors of these mummies unearthed there weren't indigenous to the region where they were interred, and they came from somewhere else, west of their final resting place, perhaps from north of the Black Sea via the earliest human highway, the Great Eurasian Steppe, or as the Chinese called it later on, the Caoyuan Sichou the Silk Road of the Steppe. I didn't mention them last time, but also sharing the Tarim Basin with these early Indo-European settlers were another ancient people called the Saka. The Chinese called them the Sai. They were also a Caucasoid people, but Proto-Iranian. And their language was from the Indo-Iranian branch of the Indo-European family. These Saka were closely related to the Scythians, and you could find them scattered all around Central Asia. Lots of legends and lore surrounding the Saka people. We'll mention them again when we discuss the kingdom of Khotan and Kashgar. Both of those places were inhabited primarily by speakers of this Indo-Iranian Saka language. 
These Saka people, as is the case with so many of these Silk Road-era kingdoms and states, well, we hear about them secondhand or by studying the relics dug out of their tombs. And you could find Saka graves in and around the Tarim Basin. That's how archaeologists are able to differentiate who was who. Human civilization all over the world all had their own little burial quirks. The Saka people, their part of Xinjiang, was the Yili River Valley. Now, most of the 894-mile-long Yili River is in Kazakhstan. Go check out the Yili River on Google Earth. It's like the Nile in Egypt. On both sides of the river are lush, green fields, a farmer's paradise. But stray too distant from the Yili River, and the land starts getting brown and desolate very fast. This is in northwest Xinjiang and northeast Kazakhstan. The Yili River Valley area, this was where the Saka settled. Some say around 500 to 300 BCE. The oldest Saka artifacts found so far have been dated even earlier to around the 8th century BCE, Western Zhou Dynasty in China. The Saka had a nemesis in another group of people known as the Yuezhir. The Yuezhir originally came from, it's thought, from around western Gansu province. And like every single one of these people, we don't have any absolute proof or photographic evidence of their origins, but it's heavily believed western Gansu, east and west of Dunhuang. Their proto-Yuezhir ancestors may or may not have been among the Tarim mummies. The Yuezhir were the strongest and most militant of the various tribes in that area. Western Gansu and into eastern Xinjiang. Everything was going along fine for the Yuezhir until the end of the 3rd century and beginning of the 2nd. This is BCE still, when they lost their place at the top of the food chain. Which brings us to the Xiongnu. The mysterious Xiongnu, we're still trying to figure out who they were. It's been suggested there was some DNA link that put them in the same category as the Huns of Attila the Hun fame. The 5th century scourge of just about everybody between the Black Sea and Central Europe, including the Western Roman Empire, by then, of course, a far cry from the uh, condition Caesar Augustus had left it in. These Huns and the Xiongnu, eh, maybe, maybe not. You often see them referred to in some books as Huns. No one has pinned down the Xiongnu for certain, but besides their possible Hunnic origin, there are multiple compelling arguments attesting to their Iranian origin, or perhaps Mongol or even Turkic origins. In other words, who knows? Back in Qin Shi Huang's time, Qin Dynasty, 221 to 206 BCE, the Xiongnu were up in their homeland, minding their business, but under their leader, Toman. They were growing more numerous and powerful every day. Qin Shi Huang and his advisors saw what was going on and viewed the Xiongnu as a clear and present danger. So they decided to nip this one in the bud and called for a preemptive strike against the Xiongnu. At that time, the Xiongnu nation was situated up around the Ordos Loop, that most interesting part of the Yellow River, the Ordos region, northernmost Shanxi and Inner Mongolia. That stretch of the Yellow River and the region it surrounds is called the Ordos Loop. That's where it's believed the Xiongnu originally came from. 
the ancient Qin kingdom during the Warring States period, and now the Qin Empire, also based around Shanxi province. Now, they knew all about them. So the mighty Qin Shi Huang's great general, Meng Tian, he headed towards the Ordos region with an army to meet the Xiongnu in battle and shut them down before they became too powerful. In 215 BCE, the Xiongnu, under the leadership of Toman, were overpowered. He was forced to lead a retreat to the north, and the Xiongnu left their homeland for the steppes of Mongolia. There, they did what all these conquered tribes did whenever they got displaced by a more powerful neighbor. They regrouped, and their leaders decided on the next move, in which direction his nation should head. The decision that this ethno-linguistic group of people we call the Xiongnu made was that they said the better way to go was to split up and spread out, but remain as one through a confederation of tribes led by one guy. Genghis Khan will come up with the exact same plan more than a thousand years later, but of course on a much grander scale. And then, at this low point for the defeated Xiongnu, like a sudden, unexpected plot twist in a movie. Two things happened. First, Qin Shi Huang died. And along with his death came the quick demise of his dynasty. And at the very same moment that the first emperor of China dies, amongst the Xiongnu, this charismatic and powerful leader emerged. He was a real warrior. This was Toman's son, Modu. He was a real bloodthirsty, rough fellow. The stories attributed to him by Chinese historians don't paint him in a very positive light. In 209 BCE, a year after the death of the Qin Emperor, Modu had his father Toman killed. Then Modu took over as the leader of the Xiongnu. And just as the Mongols called their rulers Khans, the Xiongnu leader's title was Chanyu. You'll see it also spelled and pronounced as Shanyu. So, Modu Chanyu was a pretty major influence on all the events that started to happen in East Central Asia, including in Xinjiang. Modu Chanyu had some real big ambitions for the Xiongnu. By 203 BCE, he had shaken things up sufficiently enough that he was the acknowledged head of the confederation of all Xiongnu tribes. Then he went to war. First up were the Yuezhir, who he fought four wars with. The Yuezhir, who had been the dominant tribe on the steppe and in Xinjiang, were vanquished and forced to split up into two groups, known as the Little and Great Yuezhir. The Little Yuezhir headed south and joined up with the Qiang people around the Tibetan Plateau in Qinghai. The Great Yuezhir, eh, around 165 BCE, migrated in the direction of the Yili Valley. And to tie these loose ends together, these displaced Yuezhir defeated the Indo-Iranian Sakas, who I mentioned, called the Ili Valley home, and sent them packing for greener pastures just to the west of Xinjiang. The great Yuezhir didn't last long in their idyllic Ili Valley lands. In 132 BCE, they themselves were forced out of there by a Xiongnu ally called the Wusun, there were another tribe like the Yuezhir who lived in harmony with them back in the old Gansu days. Anyway, more about the Wusun later. The upshot of all this conflict was that the great Yuezhir 
ended up settling along one of the longest rivers of Central Asia, the Amu Darya, or the Amu River, also known as the Oxus River, from which we get Transoxiana, land beyond the Oxus River. Of course, it was known by many other names, too. The Yuezhir settled in this part of Central Asia, where one of the legacies of Alexander the Great's conquests was located, the former kingdom of Bactria. The Yuezhir battled amongst themselves and ultimately formed a new political state that became known as the Guishuang Empire, but perhaps better known in the West as the Kushan Empire. And this Kushan Empire later became the dominant force that held sway over the westernmost region of the Tarim Basin. So by the start of the 2nd century BCE, the Xiongnu are fully energized and organized with the most powerful leader the Xiongnu will ever know in charge at the peak of his powers. Modu Chanyu's rise to power and the aggressive strategy he had formulated against all the neighbors to the south it worked out well. Under Modu Chanyu, the Xiongnu Confederation had become an empire that encompassed all the traditional Mongol homelands and stretched west into eastern Central Asia. The Xiongnu did more than just conquer and intimidate the more sedentary societies to the south of them. They had established a kind of extortion racket that involved forced tribute from these less warlike neighbors. And they got filthy rich and well-fed off this method. By the time of Modu Chanyu's death in 174 BCE, people were as petrified of the Xiongnu as they were 1,400 years later when the Mongols were starting to ramp up. Modu Chanyu's rise coincided with the rise of one other significant player in the region, namely Han Dynasty China. Liu Bang, the founder, was born sometime around 256 BCE. Still can't find his birth certificate. He beat Xiang Yu of Chu at Gaixia in 202 BCE. And after putting this one powerful rival away, he went on to form the Han Dynasty in that same year. Liu Bang situated the capital of his Han Dynasty in Chang'an, not far from where Qin Shi Huang ran his short-lived dynasty. And Liu Bang needed some time to recover from the civil war in China that he had just emerged victorious from. There was no love lost between the Xiongnu and the Chinese. Back when the Qin dynasty was at the peak of their power, they had clobbered the Xiongnu, who were led by Modu Chanyu's father, Tomat. And as I said, they were forced to retreat far to the north. Well, now they were back, and they leaned as hard on Han China as they did on everyone else and China's wealth, their agricultural bounty, and all those spectacular products they manufactured were coveted madly by the Xiongdu. The general consensus at the Han Palace was that they needed to assemble an army to go do to the Xiongnu what the Qin general Meng Tian had done back in 215 BCE, give him a nice short, sharp shock. And the founding emperor Han Gaozu, good old lucky Liu Bang, he led the forces himself. In short, didn't work out well, and the Xiongnu that Han Gaozu faced were a much bigger and tougher force to reckon with than what Qin Shi Huang and Meng Tian had to face down. That first attempt to scare the Xiongnu didn't work out well. So the Han court all put their heads together and decided they needed some time 
to get in shape and build up their military before they could dare face down the Xiongnu. And in order to placate these nomadic bad boys and keep Modu Chanyu's soldiers north of the Great Wall, the Hechin system was created. The four Han emperors, Gaozu, Hui, Wen, and Jing, between 198 and 152 BCE, instituted this Hechin system that saw them marrying off their own daughters, their very old Qin, this, uh, this means your kin or a bride, to keep the He, the peace. They offered them to Modu Chanyu and his successors, who held the Chanyu title. And the Han emperor not only had to offer up one of his daughters, he had to accept the Xiongnu Chanyu as his political equal. And no one in China liked it, but this Hechin system pretty much ensured minimal harassment by the Xiongnu. And this system continued on and off until the mid-8th century into the Tang. And that's not all. Besides handing over a royal princess in marriage to the reigning Xiongnu Chanyu and accepting him as his equal, the imperial court had to hand over a lot of gifts, too. All the usual kinds of things these northern peoples demanded. And don't think for a second these Xiongnu Chanyus were a bunch of vulgar barbarians living in tents on the steppe. With everything they were able to extort from the Chinese emperors, they learned how to live quite large themselves, and they built these grand palaces, just like the Chinese. So this hated Hechin system, well, I guess the Xiongnu didn't hate it so much, it worked, but no one liked it, and the squeezing got a little bit tighter each time the Chinese envoys sat down to negotiate with their Xiongnu tormentors. Then, after all these years of appeasement, along comes... Some say the greatest, but surely one of the greatest, of all Chinese emperors, good old Liu Che, who reigned for a heck of a long time, 141 to 87 BCE. In the West, that was from the Third Punic War clear through to the rise of Sulla. He was the Emperor Wu. Wu meant martial or warrior. He busted things wide open as far as Chinese expansion beyond the traditional central plain. He knew how to fight, and he put a lot of capital into building up the kind of military force that could back up his ambitions. This emperor, Han Wu Di, declared he wasn't going to take it anymore, and early into his reign, he organized a daring strike against the Xiongnu. Again, long story short, this first attempt to rid himself of this problem, it failed miserably, and Emperor Wu, Han Wu Di, he almost got captured. What a disaster that would have been. While Chinese officials mulled over their next move, someone had gotten word to the emperor that the Yuezhi, at 175 BCE, had been driven from their homeland in western Gansu by the Xiongnu, and that the Yuezhi chieftain had been captured, killed, and the Xiongnu leader who had killed him cut off his head and drank wine from the Yuezhi king's skull. Someone convinced the Han Emperor Wu that this would be the perfect time to seek out an alliance with the Yuezhi. While their emotions were still hot, a Han-Yuezhi alliance might be enough muscle power to push the Xiongnu as far away as possible from the China heartland south of the Great Wall. This is all discussed in that Zhang Qian episode, CHP 47. If you want the longer version, go give that a listen. I'll have a link uh, at the show notes. But I'll tell it to you very quickly here. This is all straight out of the records of the Grand Historian and the Book of Han. It's one of the greatest 
stories from ancient Chinese history in a personal favorite of your humble narrator. So, early in Han Wudi's 54-year-long reign, 139 BCE, a man named Zhang Qian, known for his experience dealing with the Western peoples and for his gift for languages, he was called in and tasked with a secret mission. And if he pulled off this mission impossible, it would mean that the Han armies would be able to join together with the Yuezhi and push these Xiongnu far away from where they couldn't threaten anyone anymore. And the kicker was that, how could the Yuezhi possibly say no to an alliance after being so utterly disrespected and humiliated by the Xiongnu? Kicked out of their lands, their enemy drinking wine out of the cranium of the Yuezhi leader? Slam dunk. The other thing Zhang Qian had to do was carry out some recon and obtain intel on the availability of the fabled Fergana horses who were supposedly built for battle. In Chinese, they called these striking animals Tianma, heavenly horses. If you've ever seen those uh, ceramic Tang Dynasty horses, these were them. These horses were located around the land called Da Yuan in the Fergana Valley, today's northern Tajikistan. Well, let's just say Zhang Qian's whole mission didn't go as planned. He set out with a hundred men, and in no time at all he got captured by the Xiongnu and sent to the far north and held prisoner for ten years. It wasn't all bad. He was given a Xiongnu wife, and they had a son, and he made the best of a bad situation. Then one day, ten years later, opportunity knocked, and Zhang Qian was able to make a getaway and started heading in the direction of the Yuezhi territory in the Ili Valley. Remember, at the beginning of the episode, the Indo-Iranian Saka people originally inhabited those lands and were pushed out by the Yuezhi. This is, uh, again, northwest border of Xinjiang. Well, so much time had passed while Zhang Qian was held under this kind of house arrest. When he got to Ili, he learned the Yuezhi had already been pushed out by the Xiongnu and were now down in the south of Qinghai, but also living along the Amu Darya, farther to the west in Bactria. So, Zhang Qian at long last made his way to the land of the Yuezhi, and when he finally got to pass on Emperor Wu's offer, they told him flat out, not interested. They didn't want any part of it. They had it nice here in this idyllic part of Central Asia on the north bank of the Amu Darya, and they were in no mood for fighting anymore. And besides, Han China, with its capital in Chang'an, was far away, and the Xiongnu were close by and an ever-present threat. They had to send Zhang Qian packing, empty-handed. All that for nothing. And while he was out in those lands beyond Xinjiang, as far as procuring a trade partner to supply these heavenly horses, now that didn't end up well either. These people who inhabited Dayuan, they had no interest to supply horses to the Han representatives. And for the next several years, there were a number of diplomatic dust-ups between Han envoys trying in vain to set up a heavenly horse supply chain with the traders of Dayuan. By the time Zhang Qian returned to Chang'an, Emperor Wu was still on the throne. And I forgot to say, on the way back, he was captured again and held by the Xiongnu for a whole year. 125 BCE. He finally gets to tell everyone at the Han court what he saw. 
After more than 14 years exploring every major trading center in the lands west and south of Han, China, including all these oasis states rimming the Tarim Basin, he finally had the chance to reveal the wonders he saw. And everything he told the emperor and everyone assembled at court was unknown by the Han China government. Fergana, Bactria, India, Parthia, and many other places. Zhang Qian brought everyone at the Han court up to speed with what was happening out in that part of the world, which was a lot more than what the ruling class in China was aware of. They thought all this time they were it. But now, lo and behold, they find out there were other great and substantial kingdoms thriving beyond China's borders. So the secret was out, and the kicker to the whole odyssey of Zhang Qian was that he saw the markets of these great trading kingdoms of the Tarim Basin. He visited almost every single one. And how precious and dear people held these Chinese products. Well, hearing this and realizing the extent of the untapped market, Han Wu Di took it upon himself to put in motion all the necessary measures that facilitated the start of the Silk Road. And Xinjiang plays probably the most key role of all in the Silk Road. Once you left China with a wagon train full of silk, tea, and other high-value goods, and once you pass through the Hexi Corridor in Gansu, past Dunhuang, and once you hit Xinjiang, you either went to the right or to the left, to the north or to the south of the Tarim Basin to the trading highways that passed goods, knowledge, and culture to all points of Asia and beyond the known world. So Zhang Qian's trip to ally with the Yuezhir to take down the Xiongnu didn't work, but you could say in the end his trip yielded a few good things. As spectacular as Zhang Qian's adventures were, the Xiongnu problem remained. They were now going to have to be gotten rid of the hard way. For two centuries, two decades, and two years, 133 BCE to 89 CE, the Han Dynasty, after a long, hard slog and what was to become known as the Han-Xiongnu Wars, took the fight to the Xiongnu and tried to neutralize them as a terror. It wasn't easy. Han Wudi threw down the gauntlet in 133 BCE while Zhang Qian was in his period of captivity by the Xiongnu. There was this failed attempt at luring the Xiongnu leadership into a trap and the whole thing got found out, and this put everyone on the warpath. The enmity that the Chinese had for the Xiongnu, as well as their intentions, were all out in the open now. The Han army at this time, 133 BCE, during Han Wudi's reign, was now much bigger and stronger. And to lead these Han troops against the Xiongnu were two fearless sons of Linfan Shanxi province. These were generals Huo Bing and Wei Qing. During the early Han Xiongnu Wars, their armies did most of the heavy lifting in the vanquishing of the Xiongnu threat and in pushing out the boundaries of Han China all the way through the Hexi Corridor and into Xinjiang province, which, as I said, wasn't called Xinjiang yet. So in a series of battles and major campaigns beginning in 133 BCE and lasting for over 30 years, the Han armies pushed the Xiongnu out of the regions they had occupied during Modu Chanyu's time. Unfortunately for the Han, this warrior Chanyu of the Xiongnu who had created their empire 
only lived 40 years and was gone by 174 BCE. Now the shoe was on the other foot, and it was the Chinese who packed a bigger punch than their Xiongdu one-time antagonizers. By 124 BCE, the Han armies, led by Huo Bing and Wei Qing, took the fight right into the Xiongnu heartlands. And the 121 BCE Battle of Hexi saw the Xiongnu kicked out of that part of Gansu province that had the only easy route in and out of Xinjiang from the Chinese side. And once the Xiongnu were pushed out of the Hexi corridor, Chinese forces punched their way through to Lapnor and for the first time planted the Chinese flag in Xinjiang but it wasn't over yet. The ring of oasis kingdoms surrounding the Tarim Basin and the Taklamakan Desert contained within had been longtime cash cows for the Xiongnu, and they did not surrender to the Han so easy. It took a long time, more than half a century, to pry the last of the Xiongnu loose from that area. But by 53 BCE, the Xiongnu once so feared and dreaded, were vassals of the Han. The Han government set up an administration out in those parts, led by a Du Hu, the title uh, of the head administrator for those frontier regions. And after the Han military had garrisoned enough troops out there and the place was secure, they also set up this Tuntian system that allowed these Chinese troops and administrators so far away from the capital to be self-sufficient without the need to keep resupplying the West with agricultural products from the China Central Plain. This Tuntian system began under Emperor Wu, Han Wu Di, and continued on and off into the Eastern Han. James Millward calls these Tuntian colonies state farms worked by Han soldiers. This system worked well for Han China and helped make the first century BCE the high point of the Han conquest of the far west regions. And this whole idea of these Tuntian had staying power and really was the only way to efficiently manage government troops and a Chinese presence in these very distant lands. Next episode, we'll see how all this comes tumbling down. The only ones who were writing all this down all these years were the Chinese historiographers. So pretty much everything learned about this era Zhang Qian, the Yuezhir, the Xiongnu, that was not dug out of the ground and studied, came straight from the records of the Grand Historian and the Book of Han. We in our day are quite thankful to have these ancient reference works, but it's important to know that the Xiongnu and these people who lived out in Xinjiang and Central Asia were somewhat looked down upon by the academic and imperial elites who wrote these official histories. Any group of people that fell into the nomad classification was described as pretty much a barbarian. But still, if not for these works, our understanding of this time would be a lot less than what it is now. Okay, I dare not proceed any further. Let's call it a day here. We'll pick up with Wang Mang next episode and see what happened during the 14-year interlude between the Western and Eastern Han. Pretty much from here on out, Xinjiang is going to become quite uh, an important place in the China scheme of things. So I beg you, don't walk away just yet. Much more to come, I assure you. And we haven't even gotten to the Qing dynasty yet. You know I don't like asking, but I'll ask again. If you'd like to donate to the CHP, 
paypal.me slash China History Podcast. I'm down to the last piaster I could borrow. You're also welcome to sign up at patreon.com to show your love and support. You can hit me up there if you want to get access to all these stories I'm telling. Wholly unsuitable for a family program is this. Links at the show notes, at the website, at teacup.media. Thanks again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles in the state of confusion, appealing to your better instincts to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.